Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living, the Resources of the Church, with a message entitled, The Mystery of Christ. So turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It will come as no surprise to any Christian to hear the words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Indeed, in a way, the first two chapters of Ephesians are about that. Ephesians 1 to 2 tells us of the grace of God bringing those dead in sin to life. Indeed, not content with simply bringing us forgiveness of sins, Ephesians started by saying that God has not withheld anything from his people. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places not some spiritual blessings, not even an overflowing abundance of spiritual blessings, but God has emptied the vault of heaven and has not withheld anything from his people. It's an amazing thought. Your salvation includes the assurance that God called you to be his own long before the universe was created. He predestined you to be holy and blameless in his sight. He's purchased your redemption from your enslavement to sin and the judgment to follow with the cost of the blood of Jesus. In Christ, you're forgiven, not of some of your sins or even the greater part of your sins, but there's not one sin you've ever committed that God the Father has not forgiven. Indeed, in Christ, you're free of all sin. Furthermore, his grace is lavished on you. In order to convince you this matter is accomplished, the Father has graciously given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your future life in eternity. So your glorious inheritance is secure. There's more. God has also given you a place in his family, the body of Christ. Even if you're a Gentile who had no place in the promises of the covenants through Christ, that's been rectified. All of the promises are yours and you're a citizen in the church and in the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 3 begins with the words, for this reason. Because of how spiritually wealthy you've become, says Paul, I'm about to go to prayer, praying most earnestly that you comprehend what God has done for you. I want you to know how spiritually rich you are. I want you to trust God more. I want you to experientially know the love of Christ. I want your spiritual short-sightedness to be corrected. I have to imagine Paul writing these words from prison. Yeah, he's writing to the Ephesian Christians. In just a few years after he's written this letter, Ephesus will become the most important city in the Christian world. Already at the time of the writing, it was the most important Gentile city in the Christian world. And so Paul knows that when he writes the Ephesian Christians, his letter is going to be read in a great many of other churches as well. This letter will be widely read as church services after church services in Asia and beyond will have this letter read on a Sunday morning. And so you have to imagine Paul fully conscious of just how profound an effect this letter will have on global Christianity. And so he's about to go to prayer, and he will be writing, and as he prays, bowing his knee with his writing pad still in front of him. But as one Bible teacher has said, as he bows his knee, writing pad in hand, he hears, as it were, the clink of his chains. And as he looks at the chains that hold him fast, he also remembers why he's there. He's there in prison on behalf of the believers in Ephesus and beyond. The good news that he's been sharing has resulted in a great company of men and women who are now in Christ and who should be reveling in the outpouring of heaven on them. But the good news he's been sharing has also resulted in his imprisonment in Rome. 
The Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem turned against him in wrath. Who did he think he was baptizing uncircumcised Gentiles and calling them the children of Abraham? That was a scandal. Paul needed to die. And the outrage in Jerusalem had been so severe, Paul would have died in a mob riot had the Roman soldiers not intervened and stopped that frenzied crowd. And then after having been held in prison in Caesarea for two years without a trial, Paul appealed to Rome, to the emperor himself. And so to Rome he went, and he was awaiting trial. And as he was awaiting trial, his mind was occupied with all the churches he had planted, both in Asia Minor as well as in Greece. And he was praying for them. He was thinking about them. In 2 Corinthians, he says he was daily filled with anxiety over them. And so began to write to them and to the Ephesians, telling them of their resources in Christ. He's now ready to write out his prayer so that the church can hear him praying. But then the clink of the chains and the survey of the dungeon. He will pray in just a moment, but before he does, he has a word to the Ephesians about his chains. Will they, the Ephesians and other Christians, look at Paul's chains and ask, how are we to be filled with every spiritual blessing when Paul himself is living in misery in a Roman dungeon and might be executed shortly? Well, enough background. Let's read Ephesians 3, 1 to 7. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, you might have noticed as I've read this passage that Paul uses the word mystery three times. The first time is in verse 3, where he speaks of how he became aware of the mystery. And then in verse 4, he speaks of his unique insight into the mystery. And then in verse 6, he speaks about the content of the mystery. Now, before I get into the nuts and bolts, let's understand the word mystery. If you're like my wife, you like reading mysteries. Kathy likes Agatha Christie novels. And they're mysteries, whodunits. As the book goes on, like, you know, Murder on the Orient Express, you have to wait until the end to finally come to terms with who's responsible. But here's the thing for mystery fans. They try to guess from the clues that are laid out for them, but they almost never get who did it until the end. See, a biblical mystery is like that, but it's different as well. A biblical mystery is something God planned from eternity past, but you can never discover it on your own. But when God reveals it, you strike the front of your forehead with a flat palm of your hand and you say, ah, that makes sense. But you would never have gotten there on your own. Now then, just before Paul goes to prayer, he says, as it were, I, Paul, am a prisoner. But I did not become a prisoner by happen chance or by bad luck or because of the narrow-minded hatred of the Jewish religious leaders, nor because of the bad Roman criminal justice system. None of those things explain why I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who sent me to prison. And I need to stop here and consider the implications of what he's just said. Christ wanted Paul in prison, and there was a reason he was there. Notice also that he says that Christ wants him there 
on behalf of Gentile believers. What Paul says very nicely corresponds to what he said in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. See, I know that sometimes Christians are puzzled. They're even troubled by this verse. How could there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? Didn't Christ, while on the cross, say, it is finished? Is not his death on the cross all that was required for our salvation? Yeah, but the answer to that is both yes and no. Yes, Christ's death on the cross for all time satisfied the justice of God. But in order to bring the message of Christ's salvation to the Gentiles, a great deal of suffering was yet required. Says Paul, I'm rejoicing that in his grace, God has allowed me to play that role. That's why I suffer as I do. And so Christ sent Paul to prison to suffer so that the maximum number of the Gentiles would come in. And that's Paul's first statement. Then going to verses 2 to 3, where Paul has his first use of the word mystery. Remember, he said, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. See, I want you to notice that Paul uses the word stewardship along with the word mystery. You know, Paul is saying, look, a mystery has been made known to me. It came to me by revelation. Well, Paul speaks about that part of it in Galatians 1, 11 to 12, where he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to say that the risen Jesus appeared to him, and that over a period of three years, Jesus had taught him with great care the gospel that he preaches. And so Paul says, I received a mystery by revelation. And not just that, I was given the unique responsibility of the stewardship of that mystery. So let's find out what he means there. Deuteronomy 11.19 reminds us that we're to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the words of Scripture, to ensure the Bible is being taught to our children and being talked about wherever we are and at every time of day. The 1119 Fellowship, our monthly partner program, has become an essential contributor to making all the ministries and resources of Back to the Bible Canada possible. Now over 700 strong, the 1119 Fellowship represents donors from across the country committed to the mission and ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt. One 1119 member wrote us to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Newfeld. This is why we became monthly supporters. To become a part of our monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship, or to learn more about the benefits of joining, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Thank you for supporting Bible teaching you can trust. In the ancient world, very rich people with large estates had people who served under them. They were called stewards. Stewards were trusted servants 
who had been given the role of overseeing and administrating the estate. They made sure that people who worked at the estate had proper job descriptions and roles to play. They made sure that business transactions would be appropriately handled. They made sure that the finances were in good order and so forth. You know, in a sense, all of God's people are called to be stewards of something. That is, God assigns each believer a role to play in his kingdom, and he entrusts to us the stewardship of the task that's set before us. You might also be aware that at times we refer to financial contributions that Christians make, either in the church or in other ministries, like, you know, in Back to the Bible Canada, that all this giving is a part of our stewardship. And the idea behind that is that God owns everything we have, including our jobs and our income and our bank account and our savings but that he's entrusted us to manage it or to be a steward over a small portion of everything he has. That's why when we think of it, it's not about giving, it's about stewardship. Now then Paul says he's been given a unique stewardship. He's been called upon to manage the mystery of Christ. And so the mystery that was revealed to him, well, it requires management. In response to the mystery, Paul began his lifetime plan of planting churches. Indeed, Paul would have told you that he became aware of his stewardship of the mystery even before he became aware of the mystery. I mean, the first small hints of what was to come came at his conversion. There was a Christian living in Damascus, a man named Ananias, and he was told what Jesus would do in Paul. Acts 9, 15 to 16 says, But the Lord said to him, Go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now in Ephesians, Paul calls this calling from God, he calls it grace. Paul's overwhelmed that he's been chosen by God to do what he does. That is, Paul never thought he was qualified for the task. Rather, by grace, God has given it to him. And Paul's the most unlikely candidate as a missionary to the Gentiles. And if I were on a missionary board that received his resume, I think I'd have turned him down. At the time he met Jesus, he had probably never been inside a Gentile home. What did he know about relating to people of a different culture? The only thing he ever meant anything to him was being Jewish. He knew every single regulation of the law of Moses, and he claimed to be blameless in following every single detail. He never slipped up. He kept all the ceremonial law faultlessly. You know, might have thought of him as a rigid legalist who would have had some difficulty understanding a Gentile mission and might have had very little compassion for those who'd struggled in their individual lives. Yeah, it was grace that gave Paul the stewardship of the mystery that he received by revelation and by extension. What would you, reflecting on this, think of what Christ has given to you? Is that not also grace? Has it nothing to do with your own abilities? And when I personally read this, I find myself reflecting on my own unique call into pastoral ministry and into being a Bible teacher. If I was on the pastoral interview board, I think I would have turned myself down. I had to go back to school to make up the requirements from high school before I could go into university. Studying and scholarship didn't come naturally to me. By God's grace, I married an amazing woman who showed me how to study. And when I think about my lack of interest in study and what I've become, it's grace. If I could encourage all of us to do a bit of reflection, I do believe it would be of some help. How has the grace of God uniquely equipped you to be a steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you? 
once you think about all that he has given you by grace, won't you be moved to gratefulness at God's abundant mercy? Yeah, he assigned you a task in his kingdom. Amazing, wouldn't you say? Okay, Paul has told us how he became aware of the mystery through revelation. Now at verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Notice here that Paul speaks about his unique insight into the mystery. Without any egotism, Paul says that what was shown him had not been shown to anyone before. Notice also he says that it was now also revealed to the apostles and prophets of Jesus. But Paul himself saw the mystery with a greater clarity than the others. We do know that the mystery, as we read, is that the Gentiles are equal partners in the gospel with the Jews, and we'll come back to that. But would you notice also that when Paul uses the word insight into the mystery, he means that he's been able to grasp the significance of the mystery. Look back at Romans 3.28. There Paul wrote, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Those words are very powerful. Interestingly enough, those words were disputed. We are justified. We're declared righteous before God by faith and by faith alone. That is, the works of the law or our apparent conformity to God's law contributes nothing to our salvation. Salvation comes by grace alone. We only come to God with hands stained by the crimes of rebellion to his holy law. We're deserving of judgment and damnation, but God has had grace on undeserving sinners. He's offered forgiveness to us on the basis of Christ's merits, not on our merits. Now then, how does all that grace get applied to us? It gets applied to us through faith and not through works of the law. Indeed, Paul not only states that in Romans 3.28, You remember he said it in Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Such good news. If you're at all aware of God's holy demands, you'll know that you haven't measured up. But in mercy, God sent his son into the world, die on the cross for you so that by his one sacrifice, he would forever atone for the sins of all who trusted in him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of glory. And that's what Paul preached. But Paul was able to see the implications of that in a way that others hadn't yet grasped. If it was true that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, then the dividing wall separating Jews and Gentiles would forever be torn down. It really was possible to have a church of Jews and Greeks and Romans and Medes and Elamites and Egyptians and people from the island of Cyprus and from anywhere. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul says he's making plans to go beyond Rome. He's going west to Spain. And that's what Paul saw. If we're saved by faith alone, then all the barriers are broken down in Christ. And it's this revelation that gave rise to the world missionary movement. That's why Thomas went as far away as India and others like Matthew and Andrew journeyed on to Africa. Now, of course, the First Testament did anticipate that. Abraham had been told that the nations would be blessed through him. And when Solomon prayed at the temple, he did pray that when the Gentiles came to the temple and brought their requests to God, that God would hear from heaven and do all that the foreigner asked of him. And Isaiah the prophet also in Isaiah 56 verse 3 saw the day when foreigners would join themselves to the God of Israel. But it was not until Paul came that insight was given 
as to how that would become a possibility. And then having said all of that, first how the mystery came to him and then how the insight was given to him, lastly, Paul explains the mystery itself in verses 6 and 7. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. See, the Gentiles, says Paul, have become three things. First, they are fellow heirs with Israel. You see, when God said that he would bless Abraham and his descendants, Paul now rightly points out, that the Gentiles also are truly the descendants of Abraham by faith. And then second, says Paul, the Gentile believers are also members of the same body. And I say it again, a new race has emerged. It's a race of followers of Jesus made up of every ethnic group under heaven. For us who are in Christ, our ethnic groups or our nationality has now been altered. We're not Canadians, Americans, Chinese, or Indians. We're a new nation of the followers of Jesus Christ. And third, says Paul, all Jewish and Gentile believers partake of the same promise that comes through Jesus. And that's the mystery of Christ. That's why Paul was in prison. That mystery is so revolutionary that the powers of this world will do anything they can, even to persecute, in order to stop this mystery from being heard. But it will not stop because Paul will suffer. The mystery of Christ is the most profound thing the world has ever seen. And this mystery, whenever it's heard or seen, transforms the entire trajectory of the world. That's why Paul, as we will see in this passage, must bend his knee and pray to God for his people. John, thanks so much for your message today. You know, I was thinking, what does it mean for the church to be united when we find so much dysfunction, even racial conflict within its walls. Yeah, it's long been true. And, um, you know, it tells me again that, you know, sin doesn't stop at the doorway of a local church. I mean, that's just a fact. So we still deal with our own sins, but we have to hear passages like that because these passages are from Christ, who is the head of the local church. And he's telling us how he wants us to live. And so uh, we need to listen to the words of Scripture, and we need to repent. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, But decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3000. 
3315. That's 1 866 336 3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.